Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. Here is the deal. Let me kind of go through what we know, and then I want to discuss this with you. It's just mind-boggling, and it might not technically be illegal, but if it's not, it should be. The reality is, no car insurance, no problem. Nuts to that. Let's get them off the road. Impound the cars, make the streets safer. The AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give us a call at 855-616-1620. What are those people talking about? You got a deal. A deal is a deal. Stop whining about it. Live up to its obligations. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. So glad to have you with us. A lot of stuff going on. 1235, we're scheduled to be joined by the Surgeon General of the United States, Dr. Jerome Adams. I'm going to talk to him about the ongoing coronavirus panic and what it's like to be the Surgeon General, what the Surgeon General actually does and where he fits in on the hierarchy and what it's like to be the Surgeon General in the Trump administration. All that coming up in just a couple minutes. Before that, What is going on in Wauwatosa is, in my opinion, absolutely shameful. It is what happens when a small mob gets the ear of some elected officials who candidly should know better and decide to sign up with the mob and decide to potentially violate the rights of people who are working for Wauwatosa. All right. Now, if you have been following this story, There is a Wauwatosa police officer. His name is Joseph Mensah. He has been involved in three separate fatal shootings over the course of the last five or six years since since he's joined the department. That sounds to me like it's a lot. Many, many police officers go through their entire career and do not have to draw their firearm. Nevertheless... The three shootings he's been involved with, the two, two have already been thoroughly investigated and they've determined to be legitimate. No charges brought against him. His actions were found to be in self-defense. The first situation he was involved in was about five years ago, 2015. There was a man named Antonio Gonzalez who um, confronted Officer Mensa near his home, he was armed with a sword, a sword. And, you know, what, what happened is he refused to drop the, the sword. Um, he, they got into a confrontation and the police officer fired it and killed him. All right. They investigated it, determined to be a legitimate shooting. Guy had a sword and it was self-defense. Okay. A year later, Mr. Mensa shot and killed a man named James Anderson. What happened is Anderson was asleep in his car after a night of drinking with friends. Um, what happened is the officer, and you might remember this, this is 2016, the officer confronts Anderson. He's, he's in his car in um, a park, I believe, in Wauwatosa, and he's, he's got a gun on the seat next to him. What happens apparently is that at some point in time, despite being told, you, know, you keep your hands up or whatever, the, the, The officer says what happened is that Anderson lunged at his gun and he fired. Uh, All right. Thoroughly investigated by both state officials and I believe federal officials as well. And they determined that it was a legitimate shooting. All right. The third situation happened last. So that the first two are are situations where it was found to be justifiable self-defense. Okay. The third situation 
is the current one involving something that happened in February. And you'll remember the story up at Mayfair Mall. What happened is there was the the security at Mayfair called the police because they, they had a thing going on with a bunch of, of kids that were in, in the mall. What happened is the police arrive and the kids start to run. At one point in time, there is a 17-year-old who while being chased by the police apparently at least according to the police version the kid is in the 17 year old is in possession of a stolen handgun he turns and fires at the officers including mr mensa and officer mensa returns fire and hits and kills the kid all right that that's the story the family of the 17 year old takes the position that he did not have a gun stolen or otherwise and he did not fire at the officers um, that is not the official police version, but the matter is under investigation. The investigation is going on, and the facts will come out whether or not, I mean, the, the 17-year-old had the gun stolen or otherwise and whether he fired it. Now, obviously, if there wasn't a gun and the 17-year-old did not fire at the police officers, that, that changes the, the whole story. But from what I'm being told, the authorities are are very, very confident that this is going to turn out to be a legitimate shooting. So that's the background. But it's still under investigation. Now, the the group of of protesters out in Wauwatosa have not been been happy with this. And these are the, the same group. It's not a large number, but it's a vocal number that have stormed Mayfair Mall on two or three occasions, closing the store. They've stormed the Cheesecake Factory at Mayfair Mall. And we've talked about this before. Cheesecake Factory, for, if you're not familiar with the area, is, is a restaurant on the perimeter of Mayfair. It, the, the, the restaurant had nothing at all to do with the shooting except for the fact the shooting occurred in the area around the Cheesecake Factory's parking lot. But yet this group of protesters has on multiple occasions now forced their way into the cheese or entered the Cheesecake Factory, screaming at patrons, closing it down. All right. They're also protesting at the police department, demanding that Officer Mensa be fired, demanding that the police chief in Wauwatosa, Barry Weber, be fired, etc. All right. Again, there's an ongoing investigation and it will show what what it shows. And and I guess my point all along has been you, you can't give in to the mob. What you have to do is you have to conduct the investigation. And if it turns out that this is a bad shooting, all right, that, that's fine. And I take no position on it. I'm waiting for the report to find out, you know, what do the investigators say happened? But to say, okay, we've got to fire this police officer because, well, we think it was a bad shooting before there's any evidence indicating it was a bad shooting seems to me to be a reaction to the mob. Enter now Wauwatosa Alderwoman Heather Cool, K-U-H-L. You might remember her. She's she's had a kind of an interesting career on the the Wauwatosa um, on the Wauwatosa board. Um, she she was elected in 2018 and became one of the first people to call for Wauwatosa to be a sanctuary city. Then she was in the news again in November of 2018 because she showed up as, as an election observer. And you might remember this story. She was volunteering at the polls back in 2018, and she was wearing a shirt that had a caricature of President Trump's hair with a, a, a statement in, I believe it was in Spanish, that essentially, in Spanish it meant, using the, the, the F word, um, your hair. Okay. 
<laughs> this is an older woman who shows up at a polling place to be like an election volunteer wearing a shirt like that. So you, you get you get what we're dealing with. So anyhow, with the backdrop of the officer, she has now now she's not on the fire and police commission. She's she's an older woman. She has now called for the police department to fire Officer Mensa. Here, here's what she writes. She writes a letter to the, the Fire and Police Commission out there. It says, it's time that we acknowledge that as long as Joseph Mensa is representing the city of Wauwatosa and our police department, we cannot purport to have any serious conversations about repairing the damage of our past and committing to building a community that is inclusive for all. Last year, Wauwatosa acknowledged our racist history and our genuine desire as a council and community to make Tosa, Tosa a more inclusive and welcoming place with the formation of the Equity and Inclusion Committee. Last week, we approved the formation of an ad hoc committee that will help break down the overwhelming task of addressing the systematic racism that exists in every aspect of our society. I strongly encourage... Uh, the members of the Wauwatosa Police and Fire Commission to correct the mistakes of leadership that empowered this officer to fire six bullets into Jay Anderson, eight bullets into Antonio Gonzalez, that was the guy with the sword, and four bullets into Alvin Cole. Remove Officer Mensa from his position on the Wauwatosa Police Department and start rebuilding public trust in our police department and elected officials. Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Look, if here you have a police officer who has been confronted with, at least so far, three situations where he was required to pull his firearm. In the first two, the decision to pull his firearm was found to be reasonable and justified. The third one is under investigation. And here you have an older woman demanding that they give in to the mob and they get rid of this guy. And, and by the way, the police officer is is black. For if so, you know this isn't a this isn't a race issue. The police officer is black, but people are calling for him to be fired. I don't know if the guy is a good cop or not, but to demand that he be fired before you you have the results of an investigation determining whether or not this is a legitimate shooting, I think is appalling. And I think people like this older woman should be ashamed of themselves for deciding we're going to prejudge this matter. And until we get rid of this particular police officer, you know, we we can't have any racial healing. 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We discuss in a moment. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Look, there, there is an angry mob that is operating in Wauwatosa, and unfortunately, they, they are being sanctioned in many respects by the elected officials in Wauwatosa, and now you've even got one older person who is supporting the demands of the mob before an investigation is done. It is absolutely outrageous. Like, like I say, w- when I hear a police officer involved in three fatal shootings within five years, I mean, my initial reaction is, that's a lot. Many cops go their entire career without having to pull their gun. A- at the same time all right you know you if 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 you're on the force and you're confronted with a guy who's attacking you with a sword or a guy who's reaching for his gun on the front seat of his car 
Or, if it turns out to be the case, a 17-year-old in possession of a stolen gun who fires shots at you while you're trying to apprehend him, in all those situations, the shootings turn out to be justified. And just because you have a small, angry mob who is demanding that the officer be fired until the investigation is complete, it shouldn't happen. And if you give in to the mob... All you are doing is, well, essentially saying, look, we, I don't care about the rule of law. We're going to allow the, the mob to operate. And I'm going to tell you something else. You are putting the lives of Wauwatosa police officers in danger if now the situation is, oh, my gosh, we've got somebody. They've got a gun. They're shooting at us. We can't return fire because... Okay, Alderwoman Heather Call is going to decide if an angry mob starts protesting what we've done. Well, okay, we, we might end up losing our job. Nuts to that. And again, if, if it's a bad shooting, I have no problem with prosecuting the police officer, getting rid of the police officer. But at this point in time, for these elected officials to decide, well, we, we can't have a, a conversation about, you know, race in this community uh, unless we give in to the mob and fire the police officer, who once again happens to be black. So, you know, you, you, you don't have that element that's over, that's hanging, um, over this. Um, Jeff, okay, let's go to a couple texts before we get to the calls. Jeff, I'd like to see this older woman put up her position against the police officer's job. Um, you know, um, we have a fair, ongoing review of the shooting. If it's found to be justified, she should resign as the woman. If she's confident in what she's saying, she should be willing to do that. Jeff, there is so much anger and hatred on the left, we will never recover from this. Practical reasoning is dead theory. Jeff, she should be one of those out there that should be recalled. She's nuts. Well, I don't know if she's technically nuts, but I do know if you look at her behavior, I mean, who... Who who shows up at a polling place wearing a T-shirt that, that says this? I mean, somebody that's clearly out of control. Jeff, aren't you innocent until proven guilty? So you can't do your job correctly without being criticized. Well, that's the whole point. And, and again, maybe it's going to turn out it's not a justified shooting. I don't know. The police chief in his public comments, I think, feels relatively confident that what happened was as the, the police are saying. But But maybe... You know, maybe that's wrong. And if it turns out to be wrong, then you take the disciplinary action. Jeff, maybe Heather Cool should step down. She's done nothing except embarrass herself. Unfortunately, she's my alderwoman. I did not vote for her. Uh, Jeff, this Tosa alderwoman sounds like an angry, uninformed lefty. Maybe wait until the investigation is completed. Just an idea. Um, yes, that's it. Jeff, the older woman should undergo force training so that she can appreciate the split-second life or death decisions that officers often have to make. Um, right. Jeff, it sounds to me like he's a hero. And, um, yeah, well, and again, I don't know that the officer's a hero. And by the way, I'm sure the officer doesn't view himself as a hero. And, and, and Maybe there's something wrong with all this. I know I'm repeating myself here. Maybe there's something wrong with the way he proceeded. But what are we supposed to say to the Walworth police officers? Next time, assuming this is the case, you're confronted with a 17-year-old in possession of a stolen gun who fires at you. No, you cannot return fire. You, You have to just... I mean, hope the kid doesn't hit you um, with with his shot because, well, the mob might not like it. And older woman, Heather Cool, she might decide that, you know, she's that she wants to have your job. That's the problem with 
this. And this is where you end up having to draw the line. If it's a bad shooting, that's fine. But you cannot give in to the mob. And that is precisely what's been going on in Wauwatosa. They've decided to allow the mob to be out there to close down Mayfair on multiple occasions, to close down the Cheesecake Factory, to block traffic on the corner of North Avenue and Mayfair Road. They've decided we're not going to engage this mob. And it's not a huge number of people. I mean, by by protest standards, it's not a huge number of people. We're talking dozens instead of thousands. But Wauwatosa has made the decision that they, they don't want to anger the, the mob any because maybe they think it's going to get better. Well, I just don't think that that ends up being the case. All I'm saying is wait until the investigation is concluded, and then then you have information upon which to act. If it's a legitimate shooting, Fine, that tells you one thing. If it's not a legitimate shooting, that tells you something else. If it turns out to be a legitimate shooting and the Fire and Police Commission still decides that they want to give in to the mob and they want to make an example of this particular officer and they want to get rid of him despite the fact that his actions are justified, well, that's a whole other story as well. Then just be honest and come out and say, hey, we're caving into the mob. And, you know, all those are different outcomes. But for the uh, again, for the all the the common council out there to get involved and for an older woman to call for the guy's firing, not because he necessarily has been shown to do anything wrong, but simply because the mob demands it. Shame, shame, shame on her. Back for more. Here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Welcome back. It is my great pleasure to be joined by Dr. Jerome Adams, who is the Surgeon General of the United States. Dr. Adams, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. Good to be with you. Well, thank you so much for being there. Can, you know, I, Dr. Adams, a lot of us have, have seen you on, on television at some of the briefings and things like that. J- just in general, what, what is the role of the Surgeon General um, as opposed to, for example, the role of Dr. Burks or Dr. Fauci? Well, fantastic question. There are two main things the Surgeon General of the United States does. One most people know and one most people don't know. Uh, The one that most people know is serving as the nation's doctor, the nation's top public health advocate. And in that role, it's my job to tell people what they need to know in order to keep themselves healthy and safe. And so I call it the cigarette box role. Uh, We have a Surgeon General's warning on the side of cigarette boxes. I put out a warning advising people to carry naloxone earlier this year. And also another one, uh, warning young people to be wary, uh, to, to be concerned about and to, uh, to avoid vaping. And so it's really giving people that, that health information. Here's what's going on. Here's what you need to do to stay safe. The other role that the Surgeon General has is as the head of the United States Public Health Service Commission Corps. And it's why I wear a uniform. The Surgeon General is the operational head of one of the eight uniformed services. So most people know Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, Coast Guard is the, the jeopardy question that, that people will, uh, will get. But then there's the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, the new Space Force, and uh, the Public Health Service, which uh, is a group of 6,000 officers who, whose mission is to promote, protect, and advance the health and safety of our nation. And they've been in nursing homes. They've been putting up testing sites in your communities. They've been all over the country uh, wearing blue uniforms when they're out really helping people uh, do what they need to do at the ground level to protect themselves from COVID or from hurricanes or from earthquakes or from measles or from other other uh, health health risks that they may face. Doctor, you know, obviously right now everybody's talking about the ongoing, you know, coronavirus pandemic. And I guess but my, my first question is, what do you think is causing the current spike that we're seeing in the numbers? Well, uh, it, 
that's a great question. And the most honest answer I can give you is that it's different in different places. So in some places we know it's meatpacking plants. In other places we know it's agricultural facilities. In other places it's, it's because they either reopened too early or they didn't reopen cautiously enough. And what's interesting there is there's a debate over whether or not place A versus place B reopened too soon or not. Uh, when you look at California as an example, in California, Arizona, Texas, and Florida are responsible for 50% of the new cases nationwide. Uh, California closed early. They had very strict measures in place, and then they opened late, and they're still accounting for a significant proportion of new cases. So it's not just about reopening early. It's about the fact that when we reopened, in many cases, people thought that that was a light switch, and it meant we can go back to bars, we can go back to normal. And uh, unfortunately, we're going to be living with this virus for a while, but it doesn't mean that it has to control us uh, if we do the things that we've been preaching, like wearing face coverings in public, staying six feet apart um, and protecting the vulnerable kill the spread, and we can actually have some degree of normalcy. Now, now Doctor, to that point, when when this all started, I I can remember all the charts, and we were talking about flattening the curve to make sure the hospital system wasn't overwhelmed. It, it, It now... In part because a lot of the people that are getting coronavirus tend to be younger, and so they're not as much of a need for hospitalization, and there are some exceptions. I understand that, but it doesn't appear that the hospitals are being overwhelmed, at least in many parts of the country. I mean, what is our goal? Is it to flatten the curve? Is it to make sure nobody's going to get sick? What is the object? Well, and that is a very astute question that you ask, and it's one that's really frustrated and flummoxed the public. It's important for people to know we're in a very different place now than what we were in February and in March. In February, March, April, we were seeing people die in the hallways in Italy because the healthcare system was overwhelmed. We really wanted to flatten the curve so that we could have a controllable number of cases and prevent people from uh, from dying from lack of medical care. And in that sense, we were successful. As a country, we did the things to flatten the curve. Uh, every, no one died for lack of a ventilator. Um, people actually were able to get medical care. And we now have more testing. We have 40 million tests, 600, 700,000 tests a day, more personal protective equipment, better treatments like remdesivir and steroids. And it's not to say mission accomplished, but it is to say we're in a very different place than where we are now. And now we're trying to figure out how we safely reopen. I think that is the goal right now because you're seeing missed vaccinations. You're seeing missed cancer screenings. You're seeing suicide rates go up. You're seeing substance misuse. There are real health consequences to us staying shut down. It's imperative that we figure out how we open schools, churches, jobs, but it's imperative that we figure out and and cooperate with doing it safely. And we know this can be done. We've seen it done in Europe. We've seen it done, I mean, in, in, in Italy, they, they've reopened to tourists again. And that's one of the most important things, Jeff, for your listeners to understand, is this virus can get bad really quickly, and we're seeing that in many cases in Wisconsin. We're seeing uh, accelerating cases and positivity rates. But it can get better really quickly, too, if we all do our part. And right now, the most important thing for people to remember is to maintain that six feet of social distancing when you're out. Um, it, it maintain space and wear a, wear a face covering, wear a mask when you're out. Uh, we're talking to Jerome, Dr. Jerome Adams, who's the Surgeon General of the United States. Uh, doctor, do you think we're going to reach a point where it's going to be necessary to, to shut down the country again like we did, say, in March? 
we talk about that a lot. Tony Fauci, Dr. Burke, um, Admiral Jawad, myself, we talk about that a lot. And I'll be very blunt with you. I don't think we will get to a place where we need to shut down the entire country again because we've got better data. We know that these are actually very regional issues. So Arizona, for instance, if you look at them as a state, they're level. But if you look at Maricopa County and Phoenix, they're among the worst in the nation. And so we know now we can we can focus in on areas that have problems. And that's what we're doing from a federal perspective. We have these COVID response and assistance uh, federal teams that are going into communities that are hardest hit and saying, how do we increase testing in this community? How do we increase contact tracing? How do we give people the resources that they need to put out this outbreak here without having to shut down the entire state or the entire region? Doctor, are, are you in regular contact with the president, and, and does, does he solicit your input? So uh, we have task force meetings multiple times a week, and different members of the task force meet daily, and we give feedback to the vice president every single day and to uh, the president several times a week, and the vice president um, briefs the president regularly. So to uh, that's, the, that's the nuance. The real short answer to your question is yes, the president gets information from doctors. And, and again, when I sit in the task force meetings, there are more doctors around that table than any other profession represented at that table. Uh, and uh, the president listens. People need to understand, though, that when you talk about public policy, it has to take into account uh, economics and, and jobs and finance and funding. It has to take into account personal responsibility and individual liberty. It's got to take into account religion. It's complicated. And what we want to make sure is we're giving the president the best scientific and health advice that we can. And I feel confident that the president is listening. And then it's his job uh, or her job, uh, you know, in the future uh, to, uh, to, to put that information, uh, that information together into a complicated uh, but, but, but final public policy. And so, uh, yes, I do feel that, that our input is being taken. Uh, I know that, all, that, that it's not the only determinant always of what's going to happen because there are consequences for uh, some of the things that we would do purely from a public health standpoint that may be harmful to our country or to people in other areas. Doctor, um, there's always, in any situation, there's always a lot of what I'm going to call Monday morning quarterbacking. People saying, okay, we should have done this, we should have done that. Do you, do you believe in any way, was, was, was our initial response to this pandemic flawed? Or were, were mistakes made at the beginning? So, number one, our initial response to the pandemic was flawed in hindsight because we were operating on information based on previous coronaviruses. And so I'll give you a very concrete example that is talked about a lot. We initially recommended that the general public not wear face coverings. Why? Because every uh, bit of scientific evidence we had in regards to coronavirus up to that point led major health organizations like the WHO, the CDC, now, the New England Journal of Medicine to, to say that you should not be wearing face coverings if you are just a member of the public. Uh, but then we learned that this new coronavirus actually has disease spread primarily in many cases among people who don't have symptoms. We can't tell if you're sick, so we don't know to tell you to stay at home because you're sick or to wear a face covering because you're sick. That information has changed. I wish we knew that information in February and March, but I want the American people to know we made the best recommendations we could at the time, and when the information changed, we changed those recommendations. Your scientists, your health officials are out there working hard. They're doing the best they can in a complicated situation, and there is no malfeasance. There is no, uh, there is no incompetence here. 
there, there, there's, there's nothing ulterior going on here. Uh, there's really a desire to give people the information they need to stay safe, and that sometimes changes as we learn more about the virus. We're talking to the Surgeon General of the United States, Jerome Adams. Um, doctor, I, I know you've got a very busy schedule. I'm, the Washington Post did a feature on you the other day, and the headline is, Surgeon General Jerome Adams may be the nicest guy in the Trump administration. Um, it, your, your background is you're an anesthesiologist out of, out of Indiana. Have, have you enjoyed your time as, as Surgeon General over the last few years? Uh, enjoyed uh, may not be the word I would use. I think, you know, 15, 20 years down the road, it is my hope that I will look back at this time and say, hey, we got to highlight health disparities. We got to highlight social determinants of health, things like housing and transportation. We got to highlight diseases like hypertension and diabetes that put people at risk for COVID, but also have been putting people at risk for years of earlier morbidity and mortality. And maybe one day I'll look back and say, that was a good time where we overall were able to bring up issues that, that in the long run had a positive impact on our community. What frustrates me right now is that when you look at the pandemic playbook, and everyone talks about uh, following the pandemic playbook, uh, there is no chapter in the pandemic playbook on impeachment or on a major social justice movement that, that we haven't seen the likes of since the civil rights era or, the, or how to deal with a pandemic in the midst of a presidential election. So much of what we say and do is framed through the lens of politics and other issues that are not directly related to health. And it makes it very difficult at this point in time. But it's also why I think God put me in this position. And I I don't mean to offend anyone who doesn't believe uh, what I believe, but I'm a Christian, and I believe God doesn't necessarily put you where you're going to be comfortable. God puts you where you're most needed. And uh, I believe my background and experience growing up poor, black, rural, as someone with asthma, as someone who's had experience dealing with an HIV outbreak in Indiana, uh, Zika and Ebola, is why I'm in this situation right now. And I'm just going to keep doing the best I can to communicate with folks and hope that they will hear the health messages and not perceive them as being politically motivated in one way or the other or as an opportunity to play political gamesmanship. Well, Doctor, on this program, we never have to be apologized for, for being a person of faith. One, one, one final question for you. Any insight as to when we may reasonably expect a vaccine to this for this? Well, important for people to know that uh, we are on track for, uh, for a record pace of development of a vaccine. We're still looking at December, January for development of a vaccine. But we still have to ramp up production. We've still got to get people vaccinated. And so you're still looking at living with the virus through another flu season, another winter, most of another school year. And that's assuming we can actually get people to get vaccinated. We know in many cases, less than half of adults actually get the flu vaccine. So one of the most important messages for your listeners is this is a particularly important season to get your flu vaccine. And if you uh, if we do get a COVID vaccine, we need people to be willing to get vaccinated. Vaccines are safe and effective, and they're one of the best tools that we have. But in the meantime, we can look at Europe. Look at what they're doing there. We can live without a vaccine. We can reopen up schools and places of worship and jobs and businesses and restaurants if we will just take simple measures like being willing to wear a face covering. It is a small inconvenience that actually increases our options, increases our freedom, means that we can have more places open. We can learn to live with the virus and keep rates low and keep deaths low. And you mentioned the lower case fatality rates and the younger ages. We are doing a better job of protecting the vulnerable and we're seeing fewer people die when they get diagnosed, but we can't have 60,000 cases 
a day and expect that we're going to get back to normal. We've got to do our part. It's why I have my hashtag COVID stopped with me public service announcement out, and I would direct people to that uh, on my uh, Twitter handle. But we want everyone to understand COVID stops with you. Little actions taken by each of us add up to big change over time. And we can turn this thing around in two, three, four weeks if we all work together. Dr. Jerome Adams, United States Surgeon General, I very much appreciate your, your time. Thank you much, so much for joining me. And, and anytime you want to come on, you just reach out. We'd love to have you. Oh, don't say that, Jeff, because <laughs> I love talking with people directly. I, I, I Honestly, one of the frustrations is talking uh, through national media and on a national level. And again, your message uh, uh, constantly gets filtered through a political lens. I love regional radio. I love talking directly to folks. I want the people of Wisconsin to know. I love coming out there and visiting. And, and I've been to Milwaukee. I've been to Madison. I, I'd come on your radio show anytime because I think that's the best way to help people understand how to stay safe. So stay safe, Wisconsin. Wear a face covering. Get your information at coronavirus.gov or your State Department of Health website. And know that we can turn this thing around as bad as it may seem in the course of two to four weeks if we all do our part. Dr. Adams, thanks so much. You have a great day. Take care, Jeff. That's uh, Dr. Jerome Adams, the United States Attorney, uh, Surgeon General. If, if you want to read more about his background, it is extremely interesting. If you follow me on Twitter at Jeff Wagner six twenty, I've got a in, in promoting his appearance today. I've got a link to the, this opinion piece, this piece that appeared in the Washington Post, and it's um, he's got a very very interesting background, and I certainly appreciate him taking some time out of his busy schedule to talk to us. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. It, it, it's true, <clears throat> but it's not necessarily comforting. Um, here's the story of the way the Journal Sentinel reports it. A 46-year-old man died after an assault at the North Point parking lot of Bradford Beach on Sunday evenings. Now, that that's the area, you know, there used to be the, the custard stand, and now there's a different type of restaurant that's there. But, you know, it, it's, you know, right right at the, the heart of, of Bradford Beach. And if you're not familiar with this area, Bradford Beach is the, the beach that's right on, on Lake Michigan there, and a lot of people down there on a regular basis. Anyhow, 46-year-old man died after an assault at the North Point parking lot of Bradford Beach on Sunday evening in what authorities believe to be a random attack. When Milwaukee County Sheriff deputies arrived at 9.22 p.m., the man did not have a pulse and was not breathing. Paramedics' life-saving efforts were unsuccessful, the sheriff said. The suspect fled from the crime scene but later returned on a bicycle and was spotted by a deputy. Um, he was then arrested. Uh, the sheriff says the assault was likely random. The suspect and the victim did not have any familial relationship. Uh, the sheriff said there may be some impetus or motivation that led to it, but it could have occurred on any city street in Milwaukee. Now, the, the sheriff is correct that this is just this this random killing, you know, and and and, and I appreciate the, the the accuracy of this, and I think he's he's trying to say that well, um, you know, Bradford Beach and Lincoln Memorial Drive is a safe place for people to go and enjoy themselves, and I think by and large it is, but at the same time saying, well, it it's no more dangerous than any other place in the city of Milwaukee is not necessarily an, a particular endorsement, and and I guess what is kind of troubling is the fact. That it was a, a random sort of killing. You know, you can just imagine somebody down down at the beach and you have somebody comes up and for no reason at all 
one thing leads to another and you have somebody that, that's dead. And the, the idea that it's, it's on, it could happen anywhere in the city of Milwaukee and it just happened to happen at Bradford Beach, okay, that's not necessarily particularly comforting, especially as we look at what's going on with the homicide rate in the city of Milwaukee and the overall spikes of incredible violence that is occurring. Do I think Bradford Beach is by and large safe? Yes, it, it is. But still, if you're out in public, you, you've got to take precautions and you've got to be aware because there are a lot of crazy people out there on the streets. Okay. Uh, the city of uh, Milwaukee Public Schools came out with a, an announcement yesterday. Uh, essentially, um, that they rolled out their reopening plan. And their reopening plan is that they are not going to reopen. That that's basically it. The they, they rolled out this this three phase plan. Phase one of the plan is that they will continue for thirty to forty five days to do virtual learning. So it, it's going to be the same old exactly as what it was in in the spring semester. No kids in school. Virtual learning. Um, after 30 to 45 days, their hope is they could start to bring kids back two days in school, three days online at home. So essentially, for first semester, best case scenario, halfway through it, maybe they bring kids in for two days, and then they say they will fully return to classes once it was deemed safe. But there's no idea of where that is. There's a group of teachers at MPS, one of the organizations, is saying that they don't want school to reopen until we go 14 days with new, no coronavirus cases. And, and let's be honest, that means school is not going to reopen for a couple of years. That, that, that's just, the, that's just the, the reality of this, because in our conversation with the Surgeon General just a few minutes ago, you know, he said he, even once we get this vaccine, there's going to be people that don't take the vaccine. There, there's, I mean, we're going to have to figure out how to live with COVID-19 for the foreseeable future. And by foreseeable, I, I mean months. And, and yet there's teachers groups at MPS that don't, that don't want to have in-person, in-school learning until we have essentially eradicated the disease, which means, I don't know, if you were scheduled to be a freshman this year, don't plan on going to school for the next three or four years. Now, in contrast to the MPS approach, there are a number of other school districts in the area who are going to be bringing the kids back to see how it works. Cedarburg. For example, all students will return to school on a five-day-a-week schedule beginning September 8th. Franklin Public Schools, in-person instruction five days a week this fall, regular schedule for student attendance, um, and then they have some special exceptions for people, the kids that have medical needs, etc. Um, Kettlemore Rain School District, they want to start the school year with face-to-face instruction, um, while allowing students at all grade levels the options to continue virtual learning. Menominee Falls School District, face-to-face instruction at school five days a week. Oconomowoc Area School District, students at all grade levels will return for in-person instruction. And again, all these different school districts do have options that are available for virtual learning for parents who are uncomfortable sending their kids back to school. At MPS, 
CVS, you are not going to have that option, at least under this plan. Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I think it is important. No, it's not just important. I think it is critical to try to get the kids back into school for in-person learning. I think as a general rule, and this is this is not a criticism of the educators, it's not a criticism of the system, it's just, I, I, I think if you look at what happened in the spring semester, virtual learning was okay for some kids, but for most it was a disaster. For most parents, I think it was a disaster a, as well. And the idea that we can continue to kind of, I don't know, shine this all along and and at least not try to get the kids back to school, I, I think it is a disservice to the kids. Now, MPS obviously doesn't feel that they'd have support of the parents to try to bring the kids back on, on an in-person basis. And I understand in the city of Milwaukee, which has been the epicenter for, for coronavirus, pretty much throughout the state, it's more challenging, say, than in Cedarburg or Menominee Falls or some of these other areas. Still, all right, can we continue with virtual learning? 855-616-1620, that's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line, or do we need to do everything we possibly can to to get the kids back into school to see how it works, giving the parents the option that if you don't feel comfortable sending your kid to school, well, okay, you, you can opt into the virtual thing. Keep in mind also... When you look at the coronavirus numbers, the the incidence the incidence of of kids, particularly before pre teenagers, getting COVID nineteen is very very low. The incidence of them spreading COVID nineteen is very very low. So what do we do? I think we got to do everything we can to get everybody back in class ASAP. 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We discuss in a moment. Back to Take Your Calls. Here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. 855-616-1620. Bob in Waukesha. Bob, you're first. Hello. Hi. What do you think? I, I, I don't think you can open the schools at this point. The, the virus is still surging. You know, we were told it was going to be okay to open up the state. And, all, and there's about 35 states, including Wisconsin, where the virus has surged. And I don't think the teachers are going to go along with it. And I don't see how you're going to keep elementary kids from touching each other, from in a classroom together or on a school bus. I don't think it's going to work. So when do you open and up the schools? When it's safe. When does, what does that mean? And Betsy DeVos was interviewed on Sunday on one of the shows, and she does not have a clue. And Trump took... Okay, but let, let's focus on this. What, 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 no, no, what does it mean? No, I want to, I want to focus. I, I understand you want to go off on your, your anti-Trump rant. What does it mean you're not going to reopen the schools until it's safe? Does that mean until there's a vaccine? Until there's a vaccine. Or... In, until it's not spiking. And, you you know, you're in denial about Trump. He uh, has screwed this uh, whole okay. thing. Okay, again, again, I don't... I, see, see this, this is what Dr. Adams was talking about. Right, right there. It, it's this inability to separate the politics from the, the issues. We, we hate Trump. And so he screwed this up, etc. I, I don't want to focus on, on, on President Trump. I want to talk about 
What, what do we do if you agree with my basic premise that virtual learning is, for most kids, a disaster? Most kids, a disaster. Then the question becomes, what, what do we do to get kids back to school? And if you say, until it's safe, I don't know what that means. If it means until there is a vaccine, well, okay, maybe best case scenario, then you're talking about another completely lost school year. But until the vaccine, I don't know, gets widespread distributed, maybe you're talking about a couple years. I mean, is, is that really what we're going to do? Not have schools open for a couple years. Now, the, the Wall Street Journal has a really interesting editorial today about this. And, and it talks about how at least thus far, the, the virus has had really very minimal impact on on young people, um, you know, compared to like working adults and, and things of of like things like that. I mean, to give you an idea, according to CDC, 30 children under the age of 15 have died from COVID-19, 30. In a typical year, 190 children die of flu, 436 from suicide, 625 from homicide, and 4,414 from unintentional deaths such as drowning. And and again, nobody wants to get sick, but at the same time, you know, we we do have to have that kind of balancing that's there. And that's one of the reasons why I think you, you have to do what a number of these school districts are doing is you have to reopen the schools and, and see what happens. And, and it may very well be that, that you're going to have that you're going to have a spike. And it may very well be that you have to then move to plan B and maybe plan B is going back to where we were in April. But this idea that on the fear that we might not be able to pull this off, we're, we're going to just close the schools for another semester or another two semesters. You know, parents, what, what do you think about that? And I, and I do think there needs to be an option. If you as a parent don't want to send your kids back to school, that you're you're afraid of this, or, or maybe you're afraid, maybe you've been sheltering in place and you're afraid that your kid might be exposed to something and bring it home into the house and, and you've got, you know, your your grandfather is living with you. Okay, I think there needs to be an, an option that is provided. But my guess is that most of the parents, not all, but most of the parents are going to embrace the idea of let's give this a try. And as to the teachers who don't want to go back into the classrooms, well, I, I mean, we, we, we tell the checkers at Target that they've got to go to work. We, you know, we, we tell everybody else, you know, if you're an essential employee, you, you got to make the deliveries and you got to drive around. I, I think as a general rule, it's not unreasonable to say to the teachers, okay, you know, we're, we're going to go back. And now maybe you need to make some things. We're going to social distance. We're going to use masks in the interior area. You know, okay, th- that's fine. But I think you have to try to get the kids back to school as fast as you can and as quickly as you can. Um, 855-616-1620. Let's talk to uh, Brenda in Sheboygan. Brenda, you're on WTMJ. Hi, I am a teacher of kindergarten. And obviously, I would love to be in the classroom. I did not like virtual teaching, and my students did not have one-to-one devices, and it was very difficult. But looking at the whole picture, how realistic is it going to be? We know that elementary students are full of germs, and this is different from the flu. This can really spread. What if one of my students out of 20 gets sick? What is that going to do to me? What is it going to do to the other teachers? We have a plan or very different scenarios in place, perhaps what's going to happen in the fall, but it's, it's still so up in the air 
And to make a decision right now to say, oh, sure, school's going to open in, in the fall, I think it's kind of silly. Well, but you have See, to make a decision think... soon. You've got, I mean, you've got stuff coming. Know, schools are going to open in four or five or six Absolutely. weeks. Absolutely. So what, well, what, what's your, well, yeah, well, okay, we're talking about we're in the middle of July and September, Correct. you know, Correct. after Labor Day. So what, what is the criteria? Under what circumstances do you think you can reopen school? You know, I, I don't know, because it, here's another thing, too. If a teacher would get sick, and we do have 10 to a classroom, we have a shortage of subs. Mm-hmm. Who's going to take over those children? Mm-hmm. And to have all elementary kids at school and middle school and high school kids at home doing virtual, I can kind of see that. But again, with my age group of five and six-year-olds to say to me, no, you can't touch me. No, you have to stay in this area. I'm trying to pre-plan a little bit for next mm-hmm. year and see how my classroom would be. And it, it's a scary scenario. I, I think all t- the teachers would say, we would love to be in the classroom, but there's so many questions still out there. Well, I, I guess, and in, in, I'm glad you called. I am, and I'm, I'm not trying to be flip about this, but I'm... At some point in time, you know, people have to make a a d- decision about this. Correct. And I guess, Correct. And if the idea is like our first caller was saying, well, you got to wait till there's a vaccine. Well, that means you're not going to. If the test and, and is wait till it's eliminated, and right? And and I guess I just don't see that as being practical. And it, what scares me too is that what the first caller said too is that we did reopen, and then there was this giant spike, and then you do see more children being effective by this virus and that part of it has that been studied how is it going to be with that child bringing it home to their families mm-hmm. or bring it to home to their work there is so much of there i don't know i i would personally love school to start in the fall and i might be a minority of the teachers but i can see some teachers who are in a little bit older than i am and sure. have health issues and being very unsure of starting in the fall if you were but to ask I, your I parents and you're your teacher in the sheboygan area yes okay if you were to ask I, my your, parents would say yes send them back i think my parents would say knowing from my classroom they would say yes send them back okay good enough so thanks for calling right. I, I appreciate it and, and see and, and look and I, i'm not arguing that's that it's going to be easy believe believe me I, I i get it it i mean at the same time i guess if we all agree that or that, that by and large for most kids virtual learning has not worked out or if you don't want to use that phrase it's not optimal you got to figure out okay what the plan is going to be and it, it, it to me it, it isn't just okay we're going to continue trudging along for for another year or two until you get a vaccine and nobody's getting sick for this anymore that, that that's just to me that's not practical again my argument would be you you try the in-person learning and if it doesn't work out because all of a sudden you've run out of teachers um okay well then 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 you move back to plan b but i I think you got to start to try to get the kids into school as soon as possible now if you don't think that if if you're in a situation where you've got like really large class sizes or something, maybe you have to do what they're doing in, in my old school district, Nicol- Nicolet. They're, they're bringing back kids on alternate days. Maybe you have to be doing something like that. But to me, the default position can't be we're letting the kids stay home. All right, we interesting conversation. A lot of great calls on the line. If you're on the line, please hold on. Back with more in just a minute. You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. 
855-616-1620. Let's talk to Pete in Grafton. Pete, you're on WTMJ. Hi, Jeff. Hi, I agree with you. Hi. We have to, we have to try. I mean, I'm a retired teacher, and I can't imagine teaching this way. Um, if you wait 30 to 45 days, you might as well not even go virtual at all because when the kids come back into the classroom, you'll have no idea what levels they're at. You won't know who's learned what because you won't know exactly by that virtual stuff what they've learned. Mm-hmm. So you might as well just start in October then or whatever the plan is and bring them all back then because it's it's a waste at that level. Plus, teaching is building relationships. And if I'm starting a new class, how are they, there's no relationship there. Mm-hmm. So you're going to just be, everything's just going to start over whenever they come back in the class. So you might as well just start from whenever they're going to come into the classroom. Let me ask you about the flip side. What, what about what about teacher safety concerns? I mean, do, do you think, I mean, understanding we were in the midst of this pandemic and, and things like that, do you think teachers would be willing to work and go back into the classroom, or would they be afraid that, you know, one of the little germ carriers is going to get them sick with COVID? Yeah, I suppose they would, but, you know, when I, I'm a big statistics guy, and I you just look at the statistics, 5.6 million, million people in this state, 0.006% get it. Yeah. I mean, you, get, you know, I understand there's health conditions, and the masks seem to be squelching some of this. So then if there's an issue, I don't think you'd get kids to wear masks because they'd be pulling them off. But the teachers could wear masks, and they could try, you know, I'm sure they could do the social distancing to somewhat of a degree if you make that clear with the kids. But, yeah. you know, you, you got to try. You, you, how long? You know what I mean. You, well, well, that is. The, I mean that that is the issue, and it's it's what I was trying to push right. one of the first couple callers is that if right. if you don't try. Tell, tell me when when the standard is. If we all accept the premise that we're not going to eradicate coronavirus, that it's it, there's still there's always going to be people getting sick. Hopefully, you're not having right. enormous numbers, but there's always that chance. And just like there's the chance that some kid is going to go to school with the flu, and I understand this isn't the flu. I, I get that, but you know, you, you've right, got the kid right. that gets sick and comes to school and affects other kids. There's there's always going to be that potential to happen. So thanks Wait, for calling. Like, oh, go ahead. We you know we tried last thing. Thank you for listening. Um, you know, we they weren't sure when to open the country. Okay, we're try we tried, you know, and we've had some setbacks. But you got to try because yeah. what's the magic date? There isn't one, so you have to try. Yeah. Okay. And thanks for the call. No, I appreciate it. And, and I guess that's and I think you do have to be flexible. And, and by the way, uh, again, I, I think any of these schools that are by the way are talking about reopening. I mean, they're they're very clear that if if you as a parent. If you are uncomfortable with sending your kid back to school, uh, you 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 know they give you the virtual learning option, and I, I think that that's I think that's important to, to have because there might be certain circumstances. Maybe you got the kids that have the compromised immune system. Maybe you've got the the kid who's again you've got you know grandma who's living at the house, and on the chance that the kid is out in public and picks something up and then comes on back. Uh, so I mean I think you have to have options. Okay. Um, Vincent on the northwest side. Vincent, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon, Jeff. Hi, Vincent. Uh, first of all, I'd like to say that uh, one of the reasons why we haven't seen a high incidence of of children uh, attracting this particular virus, the fact is, is that they've been sheltered in place. 
you haven't seen children out in, in large groups, like at pools or at parks or things of that sort. So they haven't had the opportunity to be exposed to this virus like, like, like adults have. And so once you began to congregate them back in the schools, that's when you will st- I think that's when you will start to see a higher, higher incidence of them attracting the virus. But I like to talk about them a while. Well, let me just let me just let me just stop you there just just for a second. Um, it's interesting you bring that up because schools in the countries that have reopened, um, and a matter of fact, I, it's funny you should mention that because I have this piece right in front of me: Germany, Singapore, Norway, Denmark, Finland. They haven't experienced, you know, any significant outbreaks after reopening schools. Israel had a different experience, but uh, but a lot of them. A lot of them haven't seen those sort of outbreaks. Now, I, I don't know whether it's because those countries are doing a better job with COVID-19. I guess I, I'm not sure I agree with your premise, but I understand what you're saying. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, okay. But I have like to talk about the Milwaukee Public Schools, which is the largest school district in, in, the, in the state. Uh, one of the two problems I see is that we talk about mass transits as one of the ways that we see that this virus is, is, is being transmitted. The fact is that Milwaukee public school students rely heavily, heavily on, on, on the, on the bus system and, and, and Milwaukee transit. I, I don't know how you're going to get, uh, uh, that amount of students. Right. You know, on these particular uh, buses to get them to school without without having them, you know, somehow mingle together and attract this virus. Yeah, you know, that, that's a good. You, have, you make a good point because because mass transit, I think, if, is is one of if you look at where when why this got so bad in New York, for example, at the beginning, it's because so many people nobody drove. You know, everybody you know took the subways or the right. buses or whatever. What about the idea? And again, I, I mean, some kids. You're exactly right. You know, ride ride the buses. Other kids, though, do walk, or their parents drop them off. What about giving the parents the option to send the kids to school? I think you have to have um, multiple ways in order to reopen these schools. I agree with you on that particular point. First of all, I think you should start with the seniors and, and the juniors first, and try to send the, send them back to back to school in order to start with the younger people, because I think you can. You can basically, hopefully, uh, 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 make them understand about social distancing and keeping masks on and things of that mm-hmm. sort more than you can do with younger children. Uh, the fact is that I think, the, and also they they have a, have a heck of a lot to lose because of when they have to deal with uh, dealing with the higher education and things of that sort when they're going on from school because you just can't keep graduating seniors without having them in schools. Mm-hmm. But also the fact is, is yeah. that uh, I think, yeah, there has to be a piecemeal kind of way that you have to get these kids back into school because we can't we yeah. can't have them out another yeah. six months to a year. I, I agree. It, it, it's going to be a, a total disaster. Yeah, I, I agree, because e- even in the best of cases, like I said, I mean, I, I have lots of lots of friends who have school age kids all across the, the map. And, you know, I, I think to a person, they, they tell you that you know, I can think of one or two situations where the, the kids adapted well. But in general, it, it's not working out. It's nobody's fault. It's just it's not working out, I think. So. Yeah, but and, but I just don't think you can compare uh, uh, Milwaukee Public Schools to maybe Oshkosh or some uh, some, some other school system or, or, or Franklin or something like that because it, it, it just, it's just too large of a system. So we have to try to do it in a different way here in Milwaukee. But would you agree with me that, that it, perhaps it, it's even more important to figure out how to get the kids back in classes in, in Milwaukee 
where the, the virtual learning is, is even more difficult than, say, in Cedarburg or Menominee Falls or, you know, in some of the, you know, Kettle Moraine or some of these other school districts we're talking about. I agree. And a lot of these students are already so far behind in, in their education that, uh, hey, they need as much education as they can get. Yeah. Vincent, you are a regular caller. I was thinking about you the other day. You are what I would call a talk radio Wilbury, which is a great, a great caller and I, I just i wanted to give you that shout out okay hey hey, hey, hey. well hey, it takes a, takes a great host to get the great caller <laughs> well uh, thank, out of me, so. th- thanks yeah. okay I'm, I'm gonna hang out i'm gonna explain what a wheelberry is in just a second there because my producer's looking at me thanks for the call vince okay so here's the deal have you ever heard that phrase there grew vincent vincent is a talk radio wheelberry okay so here here's the deal all right Remember, there was a, there used to be a super group called the Traveling Wilburys, and it really was a super group of musicians. It was Bob Dylan, and and George Harrison, and Jeff Lynne from ELO, and Tom Petty, and and Roy Orbison. I mean, th- this is a real super group, and it was it was the Wilburys. And so the question was always, are you a Wilbury or not? For for example, um. I don't know. If you think about movie stars, the example they were always given is like in the 70s, Jack Nicholson, he was a Wilbury. Richard Dreyfus, the guy from like Close Encounters, he was a good actor, but he wasn't a Wilbury. You know, and and of course, you, you can't declare yourself to be a Wilbury. Other people have to decide. Vincent, as callers go, Vincent is a Wilbury. That's the highest compliment that I can pay. Back with more calls in just a minute. We're looking for more Wilburys. This is Jeff Wagner. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. We should get traveling Wilbury bumper music. They're just, you know, just, just when, when we have some of the, that's it. And somebody just somebody says, where did that come from? It just, it, it was a phrase that's around there. And I was just kind of thinking about it. you have, you have Wilburys and all these different things. And it's, it's the highest compliment that you, you can pay to someone. Megan in Johnson Creek. Megan, I get distracted. Good afternoon. You're on WTMJ. <laughs> Hi, thanks for having me today. Sure. Um, I I just I am a teacher, um, I'm a special education teacher for students with special needs, and I I just second that we need to come back. Um, our students are just extremely impacted by learning in a virtual world that doesn't work for them. Um, I also think the idea of teaching them from six feet away is, is not going to work. So I'm going to I'm going to wear a mask and I'm going to teach my students like I normally do. Um, mm-hmm. I think two of the biggest concerns that I have uh, when coming back is, is schools haven't made a decision yet. Um, we hear updates every other week, and they're still wish-washing back and forth. We haven't yeah. made a decision about what they're going to do. Um, and it, the hardest part that I have as a teacher is that they're talking about that option of some students still continuing virtual at home, if that's what the family wants. And I'm just concerned of how I'm going to teach in person and virtually at the same time. Right. Um, so meeting both of those students' needs at the same time is, is just a concern as far as making sure all those students' needs are met, but also to when a teacher does get sick. Um, the hard part right now, even before COVID, was finding qualified substitutes right. to take over in our room. And I'm just concerned that subs don't even want to come into this environment. And so um, asking somebody there who, who maybe thinks this is an unsafe environment to come in, that's a concern that, that we all think of because we continue to give up our prep time that we use to plan for students because we have to substitute in different teachers' classrooms. And that just makes it 
more stressful on teachers and, and wears down their body that can make them more susceptible to illness. Megan, do you believe that the the classroom is inherently a more sort of dangerous environment than I know the, the guy that the, the essential workers who for the last several months have been you know r- working at the checkout aisle, and, and I'm not and I'm not comparing checkers to teachers I understand there's different training but I mean yeah. you know um, or or the people who are you know doing driving the deliveries to get the food and the toilet paper to those things do you think the classroom is inherently more more dangerous than than say those occupations where the people are exposed to the general public on a on a daily basis? When we talk about dangerous, I don't think it's dangerous. I think that I actually work um, during the summer doing retail. So right. I'm constantly um, in contact with customers and I wear a mask the entire, my entire shift. I think the difference is is the way in which we contact people. Um, as, as I work retail at a gas station, I'm touching their money, I'm touching their product, yeah. but I'm not really coming in close contact with them. I'm across the counter. Right. Um, when teaching happens, I have students who are in tears and need a hug. Yeah. Um, I'm, and I can't say, oh, I need to keep my six feet away from you. And and I think that, again, I worry. I, I teach high school students. So there's not as much physical contact, but um, they're not always the cleanliness individuals and don't understand necessarily their body hygiene and, and wiping our nose on our arm and um, touching different things, which I think that's something that's hard, but I think we're educators. Mm-hmm. That's what we teach them. We yeah. teach them about those things, and that will make our school a safer environment. I think people are afraid of that, and I'm like, we're educators. We're yeah. perfectly capable of teaching our students how to be safe in that environment and how to think about people's health and, now, and their own. Now, you said at the beginning, you're, you're a special ed teacher, right? I am, yeah. Yeah, it, it's, it's I, have, I have a number of, of texts and, and emails from 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 parents who have special needs kids and, and I, I think if, if I had to if I had to find at least one group of parents who feels more strongly than any other group that the kids need to go back it's the special needs kids for whom the virtual learning's got to be a, a real struggle if, if not almost impossible well and we 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 tried that at the end of last school year and and it um, a lot of teens that I work with have emotional behavior disabilities and so it is hard for them to learn in their homes where there's not as much structure. Um, parents had a lot of problems getting their students on their devices, and I can't help them from their home. Um, and, and I feel that even our students with some intellectual disabilities, the ability to modify on a device, it just doesn't work. It doesn't suit their needs. And so I think for that population specifically, we definitely need to be in person. I know that that does also bring in some questions with individuals who have more compromised immune systems right. in that situation. But that's where we make safeguards for them. We might have students who come for a shortened day, or yeah. they might come in a different entrance, and and that the people interacting with them are paying more attention. They're maybe wearing gloves or wearing masks. And so I, I think there's a way to do it, but I think we need to come back, especially for those students, because they need our help, and, and we can't do that virtually. And The biggest impact that I actually worry for those students is a lot of them had outside community support, but they're not getting either anymore. And so it it hurts them even more because they're not getting their normal school environment, which is structured for them. They know what to expect. They know they have the support, but now they're not getting their supports that are coming into the home either. And so it's a double whammy for those students, and they're really, really hurting, and they really 
they really need us to come back and have their support people who have their back. Megan, thanks so much for the call. I I really do appreciate you joining us. It, and I I just I I almost never spend the, the better part of an hour on any one topic, but this one I I think it really just hit home. And I don't know if there's a right or wrong answer. I think there's a better or worse. And I I, I think in general I applaud the school districts for trying to get people back. And I appreciate that MPS ha- has a different standard and some different issues that maybe they deal with. But still, I, I do believe it's got to be a priority that's there. It, it, if I can direct you again, if you follow me on Twitter, it's at Jeff Wagner 620. I sent out, there's a really interesting piece. It's an op-ed piece in today's Wall Street Journal, and I, I, I have a link to it. It's called "While I'll Be Why I Will Be on Campus This Fall. And it's by a professor at Georgetown University. And I understand college, not 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 elementary or secondary school. But the headline is, he says, I'm high risk for COVID-19, but I'm obligated to give my Georgetown students the education they pay for. And it, it's a you know, it, it's a it's a sort of a lengthy discussion about. You know, well, here's one of the parts. He says, I don't believe the risk of teaching in person is an unreasonable one. Um, you know, in, in my opinion, Georgetown University, which is where he is, is exercising an unreasonable amount of care to protect its students, faculty, and staff against the, the virus. You know, and then he goes on. He says, look, I understand why my colleagues, especially those in high-risk categories, would choose to treat remotely. My comments only reflect my own evaluation of risks and rewards and are not intended as a criticism of people who made another decision. But when classes start up again in August, I will be at the podium ready to look my students in the eye, which is all that will be visible above their masks. And I'm ready to get back to work. In any event, if you want to see his rationale, um, follow me on Twitter. It's at Jeff Wagner 620. I've got a link to that. All right. We've got a lot of great stuff still to go on the program. Don't go anywhere. This is Jeff Wagner. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. Well, if I do say so myself, those are two interesting hours of radio. Got a third one coming up. This hour, get this, Tony. We're, we're talking about tear gas, and we're talking about pro wrestling in the age of COVID-19. I mean, it is an eclectic program, like right? Like the one-two punch, yeah, that's Absolutely. for sure. Absolutely. <laughs> tear gas and pro wrestling. What do we do for Oh, we'll do tear We're going to do we're going to do tear gas first, then we'll then we'll go to pro wrestling in a little bit. Uh first, the Brewers are almost back, but first we've got one more look at a Brewers classic. Join us Wednesday at 6 for the Brewers and the Reds from 2018 in a game that featured 25 runs and the first cycle of Christian Yelich's blossoming career. We're one week closer to live Brewers baseball. Brewers Classic, sponsored by Dave Drake Camp Heating, Boucher Automotive, Previa, uh, Badger Mutual, Chevrolet, and West Bend Insurance. All right. Now, we, we all know, even though some are in denial, that when the social justice protests broke out in Madison, Madison authorities completely and totally lost control. Right? Can can we agree on that? The the authorities now there's there's lots of blame to go around. The, the police were overwhelmed. You had the incompetent mayor who who just 
you know, didn't want to antagonize the protesters. So essentially they, they stood by and uh, allowed arsons to take place, uh, allowed rioting, allowed destruction. You had the governor of the state of Wisconsin who did not want to engage the protesters. And so, you know, you, you allowed the Capitol Police allowed against statues to be, you know, destroyed um, because we were trying to have we got to a point where we were guarding the Capitol. It was so out of control that you didn't want the protesters storming the Capitol. Madison lost control. Right now, you would think in the aftermath of this, local officials would be concerned about what the hell happened, how did we lose control, and how can we get things under control in the future? How can you have arsons and lootings? How can you have a state senator who is pummeled? How can we have that happen? And how can we prevent, and no, essentially almost no arrests being made. Almost no arrests being made. How can we stop that from happening? You would think that if you, you cared about public safety and you, you cared about the businesses in the community and you cared about creating a safe environment for people to live in, that's what you would be worried about. You would think that, right? But if you are the Madison Common Council, your thinking would be wrong. You know what they're upset about? They're worried about the cops using tear gas. I, I swear, hand in my air, in the air about this. Here's here's the story. It's out of the Capital Times. Madison Alders, that would be older men and older women, offer proposals limiting tear gas pepper spray use. All right. Um, a proposed ordinance from one of the aldermen calls for a swift change to ban certain crowd control tools. A second resolution, and that would include tear gas, a second resolution from three others would ban the use of tear gas as of November uh, 17th. Okay, ban the use of, of tear gas. And, and here's the justification for it. That this, this concern is that, you know, during the protests, Madison police used tear gas. All right. That, that's that's what they did. They used tear gas to try to disperse the crowd. Um, the aldermen were upset with this and they said, OK, we want an ordinance that would prohibit all Madison police officers and any other officers responding to a request for mutual aid by the city. In other words, it's out of control. We need help. The ordinance would prevent anyone from using tear gas, mace, pepper mace, pepper gas, or projectile devices as crowd control measures. Um, (laughs) The the proposal says, okay, what we want to do is we want to support de-escalation tactics. In other words, we want to go to the rioters and we want to say, Mr. Rioter, would you would you? That, that, that Molotov cocktail you, you have in your hand that you're getting ready to, to throw at the city-county building, would you please, pretty please with sugar on top, would you please not throw that? All right, here's one of the idiot aldermen. The primary motivation is to address concerns related to, did I call him an idiot? Yes. Anybody that says what this guy says is an idiot. The primary motivation is to address concerns related to tear gas in general, and in particular from the nights that tear gas was used downtown. It's pretty clear that tear gas is a substance that's very problematic. According to the Center for Disease Control, tear gas causes chest tightness, coughing, choking sensation, noisy breathing, wheezing, 
shortness of breath, and it can have effects on the lungs. Oh, okay, um, no, no kidding. That's because you're using tear gas to disperse crowds during riots. Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. It is absolutely amazing to me how far this pendulum has, has swung to the idea that you have people who are engaging in out-and-out vandalism, lawlessness, um, injuring other people, burning things down, rioting, looting. And the concern of some of these elected officials is we want to take away the ability of police to use tear gas to disperse crowds. 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I, we've gone through the looking glass. You know, and you, you see this in Milwaukee as well. you got the Fire and Police Commission who's who's saying, okay, they, they used tear gas when you had a bunch of protesters that decided they were going to walk up the freeway. Yes, the police used tear gas to disperse them and get them the heck off the freeway. I mean, who in their right mind would take away the ability of the police to use a measure like tear gas to, again, disperse crowds. 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Let's start with Jim in Hales Corners. Jim, you're first. Good afternoon. Hey, Jeff. Hi, Jim. If I were a cop in Madison, I would quit today. I I can't imagine having to work under such uh, conditions uh, the next step is uh, they'll come back at them and say, you can't chase uh, people that have caused or might have caused a crime because it might give them heart, heart attacks. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's, that, that's right. It might scare them. Their adrenaline might get up. Yeah, I, 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 no, I, see, I'm with you. It's amazing. Well, I mean, I, I'm with and, you. And would... the, go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, the, the thing that I've always wondered about, and you see over in Europe all the time, is water cannons. I think water cannons are really effective, and I don't know why they don't use them here. If you, people don't know what a water cannon is. It's basically a fire truck with a large high-pressure hose on top. Right. And, and I think they ought to try that. Well, I mean, th- I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, again, I, I think, you know, part of that, you, you go back, you have these images of Selma, Alabama in the 1960s and turning water hoses on protesters and stuff. But, I mean, look, do, do I think you should be willy-nilly dropping tear gas on crowds? Well, no, of course not. But at the same time, this is a, a non-lethal way of dispersing crowds and, and I, I think you you want don't you want police officers to do this and, and yes it's going to have some consequences yes it's it's going to make your eyes run you know and, and it's going to you know cause you some breathing problems temporarily yeah that's why you don't want to be around when the police do it which is why when the police tell you to disperse uh, the, you, you should disperse if the police say this is an unlawful assembly okay you you move on and then there's not the need to deploy tear gas. Here's a text, Jeff. Um, banning the use of non-lethal force options for law enforcement makes decisions from using non-lethal force to lethal force much more difficult. With less non-lethal options, law enforcement may have to result to using lethal, lethal force and create even more violence. Well, that I mean, and I understand exactly what the texts are saying. It's 
Okay, so let's say you have this deal. You've got the police that are out there. And, of course, in, in Madison, the mayor doesn't give a rat's rump that you've got people that are throwing bricks at the cops. The common council doesn't give a rat's rump that people are throwing bricks at a, the cops and assaulting them. They don't care if cops are – and they and that and I know that sounds starch, but I firmly believe that that is the case. There is little or no support for the job that the men and women on the police force in Madison are doing. And, and you can make that argument among elected officials, I think, here in Milwaukee too, but not to that extreme. They they don't care. They, we're going to decide with the rioters. We're going to decide. We're going to side with the anarchists, and we're going to look the other way. So yeah, you have a situation where you've got a crowd that's throwing bricks and things like that at, at the police officers. All right, you've got this large angry mob, or or even a relatively small angry mob, but it it's a mob. So what are the police supposed to do? Yes, you try to de-escalate this. Oh, please don't throw that Molotov cocktail. Well, that's fine as far as it goes, but you know darn well it's not going to stop them. So you use the tear gas to disperse the crowd. Yes? Is the use problematic? Yes. You know, might it cause somebody to be uncomfortable? Absolutely. But the alternative is to allow people to chuck bricks at police officers. Um, uh, Jeff, I'm a retired correctional officer. During our training, we were required to stand in a group and get sprayed in the face. Where's the outrage in that by the powers that be? Oh, by the way, none of us were injured from it in any way, shape, or or form. Um, Jeff, would this apply if the military got involved? If the police can't use tear gas, what about the military? Well, I don't know about the National Guard. It, it The ordinance would prohibit... I'd have to look at the way they write it exactly, but the ordinance would would definitely prohibit anybody that's that's called upon by a mutual aid pack from from doing this as well. So if they called in the Dane County Sheriff's Department, they wouldn't be able to deploy tear gas. We're we're just through the looking glass on this. And and what's so amazing is there's not one person that stands up and says, Wait, why don't we look at what the real problem was in Madison? It was the looters. It was the vandals. It was the the anarchists. And interestingly, the acting police chief out there says, look, limiting our ability to resolve situations with things like um, like tear gas increases the opportunity for bad outcomes. If these ordinances get passed. Um, you would significantly cur- curtail our ability to respond to large crowds, violent crowds, looting, and that sort of of thing. So, I mean, that's precisely what goes on. You have elected officials in Madison, starting with the mayor and many members of the Common Council, who apparently are just hell-bent on turning the streets over to the anarchists and the looters in the name of, I don't know, some sort of societal reform. Would the last business to leave downtown Madison, please be sure to turn off the lights. This is Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. I just sent out a tweet. I, I had to make sure I, I proofread it because um, <laughs> with the cancel culture out here, I, I had a had a rough draft of a tweet I was going to send out a couple days ago, and I'm very glad I proofread it because there, there was a, a word, and I and just as I was typing the thing up, I omitted a letter, just one letter from one word in the piece, and um, the, the word I was using 
what was not objectionable at all. But by not putting that one letter in, it, it turned into something completely different. And I, I knew with the cancel culture out there, I, I thought, gosh, I'm really glad I took the minute to proofread that, that tweet because I, I would have I would have been in meetings, if, if nothing else. Nobody would have believed that, well, you know, it was just this inadvertent typo and he was trying to get the tweet out quick and there was really some, you know, hidden meaning for why he didn't put that particular letter in. And the truth was, it was just I was typing quickly and I, I, I missed that. So caught that. But I've now proofread this. Um, there's a, there's an op-ed piece in today's Journal Sentinel that is a, a must-read. Um, what would what would defunding the police really mean for Milwaukee? Chief Morales weighs in, and, and I've got a link to the, the story. Um, you know, the, the, there's no secret. I am a huge fan of Al Morales. I, I think he's he's done an absolutely tremendous job, and he's done a job with very, very little support from the, the mayor, who for a variety of reasons just has never had his back. And um, very, very little support from the Fire and Police Commission that that changes changes um, you know bosses like I don't know some people change underwear they they keep going through one after another. You've got a common council that that appears to want to side again with with rioters and looters more than it wants to side with people who are trying to you know keep the order. And it, it kind of understands this the, the frustration that's there. In any event, the piece is you know what what does defunding the police really mean? Now for for some people it means exactly what it says: defund the police. They they don't want to have cops. Let's get rid of the police budget. Let's turn Milwaukee or Madison or wherever, Minneapolis, let's turn it into escape from New York because it's going to be this wonderful utopia. If we don't have those evil police out there, it's going to be just terrible. Well, you know, nuts to that. I mean, that, that's just that's just, just crazy. But then other people recognizing that defund the police just sounds like just complete, you know, you know, whack job stuff. They say, no, defunding the police doesn't mean defunding the police. It means just cutting the police budget. And so uh, Chief Morales's piece, you know, I mean, he, he just he talks about what this would mean. Now, in the city of Milwaukee, where you have we are on pace and it goes, I think it, it can't be emphasized enough. We are on pace to have as many homicides this year. You got to go back to 1991 to find a year where we had as many homicides, and that was the 19, that was the Jeffrey Dahmer year. Okay, so that's including all the, a lot of the Dahmer homicides, um, and and it's because of a wide variety of factors. But you, you've got violence that is just flat out out of control. The police department is already down. At least 60 officers, my sources say the reality is it's actually closer to 90. But we've already taken 60 away. If you were to have a, a 10% cut in the department's budget, that would be about $30 million, which would equate to roughly oh, 375 officers. Let's, let's, let's lower that down. Let's say it's not 375. Let's say it's 350. Okay? You add that 350 to the 60 that were cut last year, and, and you're talking about over 400 officers, that, that's about a 25% reduction in police officers in Milwaukee in just two years. I, I mean, seriously, in just two years. Who's going to answer the calls? Do you think the car thefts 
thieves are, are going to stop stealing cars? Do you think the people, you know, running the mobile drug houses are going to shut down the mobile drug houses? Do you think that the people who are fleeing from police are going to stop? Do you think that the people who are burglarizing homes are going to stop? And then, of course, you, you get to the violent criminals, the carjackings, you get to the assaults, you get to the shootings. All right. Do, do you think that they're going to reduce their activity by 30 percent just because in an, in an effort to try to appeal to, I don't know, the spirit of the times, we have reduced the police department's budget by $30 million? I, I mean, do you think they're going to stop or... More likely, are they going to be encouraged? Are they going to be saying, hey, this is the opportunity. There's fewer cops out on the streets. This is our our chance. I mean, obviously, you know, to anybody with an IQ, you know, kind of higher than plant life, you realize that by putting fewer and fewer police officers on the street, what you are doing is you are green lighting the bad guys to go out and continue to commit crimes. Look, I'm not against finding money. If you if you think more social workers and, and midnight basketball and these different things, if you think that that's a way to, to help get at some of the root causes of crime, go with God. I'm not going to argue with you about it. That That's fine. But find the money to do that. Don't take money from the police to do it. It just, all it does is breed more violence. It continues to make the city a even more unlivable place to be. And at some point in time, you're going to have businesses which, by the way, I am told by multiple sources, you've got a lot of businesses that between COVID and between out-of-control crime, they're getting ready to just say, we're pulling out of Milwaukee. We, we can't make a go of this anymore. And, you know, you, you, you want to kill Tom Barrett. You want your legacy to not be that stupid trolley that nobody rides, but you want your legacy to be, you know, the death of the city. You go ahead and start taking money away from the police department and letting the criminals run the city. This is Jeff Wagner.